Welcome back to Med Talks. In this episode, we speak to Sir Kenneth Kelman. For many, he will not need an introduction, but for those that do, this podcast serves as one. Since for a man who's achieved so much in his life, there's no way we could cover it all in a half an hour podcast. So this acts as a highlights of his life, a montage perhaps, of all the things he's managed to achieve and done. And actually you'll realise how he's had an impact on your life or a family member's life through his work as either a doctor or as a public servant. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. It was a privilege to interview um, Sir Kenneth. Um, and he speaks incredibly humbly about his life, which I think speaks volumes about the sort of man he is and how he's able to achieve so much in his life. Because he didn't do it for the CV or for the sake of it. He did it because he wanted to make society better. I'll, what I'll do then is I'll kind of just start off talking about, obviously, we wanted you to come on to the podcast to talk about your life, considering uh, you've had such a rich career within the, the medical world. And actually, it obviously works out really well, because as you say, you've just um, written your autobiography, it started in a cupboard. And what kind of motivated you then to write your autobiography? I think the main reason was that um, I worked quite hard for a lot of the time and didn't see the family quite as much as I would have liked to. Uh, we're a very close family, so that's not a problem. But I thought this was a way of setting out to, to them more than anything, just what's what's happened. So you've called it, it started in a cupboard, and I believe that's reference to you where you did your homework as a teenager for high school. Is that correct? Yes, uh, my, my father died when I was only nine, a heavy smoker. And uh, we were living in a, a little council house in the upstairs flat of it. Uh, we didn't have very much money, so my, we took in boarders. So they had one bedroom, my wee brother and I had another bedroom, and my mother uh, lay in the, in the couch in the living room. It meant there was actually nowhere for me to, to go and sit down and write things. Uh, but I found a big cupboard in the hall. It had a, a sort of shelf on it, but no light, so I had candles. And that's where I really began my, my life in academia. I, when I read that, I was just solely impressed. That's how it all began, just in a cupboard with some candlelight. And you were, as you've put in the book, you're actually really interested in lots of different careers. I read that you were, it was one consideration of uh, engineering, and then also following in Charles Rennie Macintosh's footsteps as he also went to the same high school you went to, but it was actually a family suggestion on, that you take on medicine. Um, yeah. I've got quite a lot of cousins and we meet regularly, not just now with the lockdown, but uh, we meet regularly. And in these discussions, they said, what, you, what would you like to do? And I said, I'm not sure, but I think bioengineering sounds good. And they said, why don't you do medicine? I said, well, okay. And that was it. So it's not something that was in my mind for years, I want to be a doctor. It was uh, done in a, a slightly different way. And a lot of the things in my life have been like that. Things have come up, like Chief Medical Officer of Scotland, like Chief Medical Officer of England, like the Chair of Oncology. Quite unexpected. And I've just done them. I love that. Just, just Oh, the just Chief Medical Officer of Scotland turned up. So obviously we're 
what we might could do is just kind of go through, yeah, from what we're talking about now from university and through all these achievements. So obviously you said you just decided to study medicine, but you also came out with an intercalation in biochemistry. You took a PhD in dermatology and received an MD uh, with honours on organ preservation. So could you tell us a bit about your university life and how you managed to achieve all of that? Well, first of all, I enjoyed university life hugely. Uh, our year was a great year. We know each other well. We still meet. We should have met, I think, last year, but that was cancelled. So we kept in touch. It was great to, to do things. Uh, the anatomy lessons, as I mentioned in the book, uh, you had about six or seven people, and you got to know them really quite well as you dissected the body in front of you. So it was great fun, and sport was really quite important to me too in that. But I got the opportunity to do an integrated degree. And at the time, there wasn't an integrated degree that you, you have now. Uh, it was uh, only anatomy, physiology, or biochemistry. So I chose biochemistry. And that opened a, a whole new world to me. It was wonderful. And it was obviously you met your wife, Anne, at university. And you were, as you remember, you were very thankful. <coughs> very thankful for your support and taking on that intercalation. Um, and I just thought we might as have a wee chat about it. It's one of the sweetest stories I've heard that you met your wife on the back of a, in a lorry depot at the end of University Avenue. Um, obviously there's no lorry depots at the end of Uni Avenue, but do you want to just tell us a wee bit about that? Cause it's such a, such a lovely story. Well, in the, in the 1960s, there was something called Charities Day, which the students in all the universities and colleges got together, ran around the, the, the city of Glasgow, collecting money for charities. I happened to be playing in a jazz band at the time, the banjo, as it happens, uh, and we were going to go on, and uh, they decided that we could have a, a troop of young ladies dancing. Uh, so we met the night before, 29th of January, 1960, as it happens. We met the, the night before in uh, somewhere that we could park the lorry, get onto the, the, the lorry, and uh, practiced. Uh, and the next day we were around the city with my wife and her friends dancing while we played the, the, uh, the jazz band. We then went to the uni that night and we met each other and we've been together ever since. It's just, I just read that and I thought it was just wonderful. I just, I also just like the comical sense of meeting in a, on a, in a lorry depot, just as a student. And uh, also at university as well, you were the president of Medture. Um, what yeah. was what was Medture like then back back when you were at university? It was, I think it was a very good society. It was, I think, like now, uh, a variety of social meetings, but also meetings listening to people talking about their particular interests, whatever it was. It was it was good fun uh, doing it, and I, I enjoyed being president. It uh, gave me again a broader view of the world rather than my own little view. And that's been, again, part of my career, thinking beyond what I do to what other people do. And that was a great fun. So I really enjoyed being president. And back back then, did you, because we have in Medture, obviously when there's not a lockdown, on a Thursday night is our usual night that we go to the union and either we'll have like a game, there'll either be games night or educational stuff or it will just be socialising. Was that, has that been a thing that's been going on since then, Thursday night pints? Yeah, very much so. Um, perhaps not too much socialising because women weren't allowed in the union in those days. 
Um, so it would be it's slightly different, uh, but very much a social bit, but also listening to people from outside the university or inside the university talking about their particular interest. It just before we go on, I've got a sign up that says this meeting has been recorded. Uh, can I cancel something because I can't see your wee face? Oh, um, just click, yeah, just, you just click OK. It should, um... A few moments later. No, oh, I can see you now. Oh, yes, so, so the mentor was a great thing to do. It, it, it meant a lot to all of the, all of the boys and girls in the university because it gave them a place to meet. Yes. I think, uh, and you mentioning there, actually, you weren't allowed in the union. How, how come? Where did Metro then meet back then? Um, well, it met in the union. You could, you could meet for certain things. Uh, and the dances, where you could go to the dances with, with girls and boys. Uh, but it, it, was, it was much more of a, a men's union at the time. Ah, right, yeah. Uh, oh, I forgot about that. Wasn't it, it wasn't until the 1980s, wasn't it, the union actually finally allowed all genders into the after graduation and you amassed all these degrees leaving Glasgow University the next thing that I've got on my timeline here is you became dean of postgraduate medicine uh, in 1984 um, along with you were chair of oncology when it says chair of oncology was that at a specific hospital um, the, the story is an interesting one because when I finished my house jobs, I became a surgeon and did that for about seven years in the vascular and transplant area. The university was then given half a million pounds, which is quite a lot of money in the 1970s, to set up an oncology unit. Uh, and that was going to be the first in Scotland. I had been to London for a year working close to the Royal Marsden Hospital, so they asked me who I thought should get the job. And I gave them quite a lot of names in, in London. And as it turned out, nobody wanted it. So um, there was an interesting meeting between Sir Andrew Kay, who was the Professor of Surgery, and Professor Stuart McPherson, who was a Professor in Edinburgh, uh, in Chicago. And Sir Andrew said, do you think we Kenny could do it? And uh, Stuart said, yes, I think we Kenny could do it. <laughs> At the age of 32, I was appointed Professor of Oncology without any real experience in it. Uh, and it was a, it was an absolutely wonderful time. And I can tell you some details of that if you want. But that's why I did that. And I did that for 10 years. A lot of it was about education and developing educational tools, which is why the Dean of Postgraduate Medical Education was such an appropriate change. If I'm not mistaken, becoming a professor at 32 is an incredible achievement. I think most professors are what, beyond the age of 40 or 50? Yes. That's uh, that is incredible. So you talking about oncology then? That was, uh, if I'm correct, that was your specialty then for the for the rest of your career mainly. Yeah. Uh, yes. And you were part of the Kalman Hine report. Well, obviously your name's in it from 1995. Uh, could you explain to like our listeners why that was such an important report within the world of oncology? Well, it wasn't the work of oncology. It was the work of Beyond that, and the, the whole health service is sometimes called the Calvin Klein report, by the way. It, it was an opportunity to look at how uh, medical education, postgraduate medical education, could be taken forward. And as you look around the country at the time, 
people who are in registrar jobs for 10 years and senior registrar jobs for six years. It was just all chaotic, really, and had no uh, real way of taking it forward. So our job was to put that together in a, a plan which allowed people to graduate in medicine, move into junior posts, into senior posts, and then move forward. And to have it done in a coordinated way, the regional postgraduate deans across the country were responsible for putting all these things together. And they did a remarkable job. And I think it changed things. People talked about being colonized, which is, I'm not sure if that's a good thing to <laughs> So that's not the only, uh, well, I don't know what you'd call it, report or, or name of something that has your name to it. I'm explaining this very badly. Because I've also read that you chaired what was known as the Kalman Commission, uh, which I was not aware of until I read about this which was uh, that really important uh, commission by the Scottish Parliament about looking into to devolution, which I guess is not particularly medical. So how did you come about getting into that uh, line of work? I think when you move from being a clinician in oncology, for example, into the public health field, uh, Chief Medical Officer of Scotland, Chief Medical Officer of England, you change the, the setting that you're operating in and you get to know people in a different kind of way. So I had an experience of government. Uh, so it's not as if I, I didn't know what was going on. So it was an opportunity to bring a wide group of people together and think about uh, the devolution that had begun uh, two or three years into it. Could it change? Could it be better? So our opportunity there was to try to rethink some of the things going on, and we made some changes there, and then subsequent changes uh, to it have, have progressed since then. But it was quite an important one to do. If I'm correct, so this this commission recommended that uh, the Scottish Parliament should have greater tax raising powers. It should have regulation of air guns, uh, drink driving limits, and the national speed limit, which we do now have. So was it? Was it that commission then that kind of pushed that those changes through for the Scottish government? Yes. I mean, one, one of the things that we had to think about was you can't do too many things because you need to have the background uh, and the infrastructure to, to deliver. So these were quite minor things in one sense, but it was a way of saying this we could do better, we could do it slightly differently. And a couple of years after that, after maybe three years afterwards, there was a further commission report, which I didn't chair, which took it further. And that was actually very important too. So we, we laid the foundations, if you like, of how we might change to make it easier the next time uh, you look at it to do it slightly better and perhaps slightly more devolution. That is fantastic. I, I am in just awe of just how that's a, that's a big, big change to obviously be part of and, and to push through. Um, I know we've we've jumped actually quite far ahead in, in the timeline of things, and you've been mentioning uh, the chief medical officer role. But just before that, if I'm correct, you were the UK representative to the World Health Organization. Um, so, what what was it like to be part of the World Health Organization on like that's a that's a global scale? Well, what happened was that when I became chief medical officer in Scotland. Uh, I linked with the Chief Medical Officer in England, uh, and he, as it happens, was a, a member of the World Health Organization uh, at the Assembly twice a year he, he used to go to, and occasionally he invited me along. 
very nice to uh, When I became CMO, I became the member of the Assembly for the United Kingdom. So it's the United Kingdom I was representing there. And one of the things I then did was I chaired the executive committee of the World Health Organization, which is a very interesting thing to do, thinking about health in the world, from infection to obesity to poverty uh, in a global sense. And I did so I did that for a year, which is fascinating and actually quite an important job. Uh, and I think in the middle of a pandemic, the World Health Organization, there's a great deal to do in that. Stuart, is there, what, what were you dealing with then specifically in the WHO? Is there any particular sort of cases or work that you were, you were doing at that time? Well, HIV infection was quite an important one at the time. And that, of course, has worldwide consequences. And that was one of the, the bigger ones that we did. But the other one, of course, is, is poverty. Uh, and actually beginning to change, if you can, the way in which uh, people come come up. Uh, I also, I mean, cigarette smoking, again, was another critical one in a worldwide sense. Of and that, if I'm correct, as you mentioned in the book, was quite a personal one to you, how to address smoking within the country. Um, with obviously, your father being a smoker, and you were saying that it was trying to understand what's the best way to... To tackle that sort of addiction have you ever now in hindsight do you have any advice perhaps on obviously that's something that we still do to this day and medical students will do into the future of getting people onto uh, uh, well addiction helplines and smoking cessation guidance do you've got any advice on on that i think the um the important thing was having senior politicians on board if senior politicians don't want it to happen then it won't, it won't happen. And then something like that, which should change the way people buy things and the way people can do things and where they can smoke, where they can't go. The, the big change really occurred in the UK, I think, when ministers said, this is bad, we need to stop this, we need to change things. And that was where, and when uh, cigarette smoking was banned in public places. And if you look back at the, the old photographs, I've got some old photographs, some old movie films, you know, my, my father was smoking everywhere he was. And that was the case at the time, not, not just him. So uh, by getting uh, senior politicians to say, we must stop this, this is bad for you and it's bad for the country, then it made a difference. Then you could do things. So when, when did that happen? Were you involved in that work to convince politicians to get behind it? Um, you know, it was just beyond my time. I was doing my best. There was one particular health secretary whose name I completely forgot. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can't remember. I, can't, I just can't remember his name. But uh, he was uh, all against doing anything to stop smoking. He was a smoker himself, and and you you couldn't. Uh, when I went into his office, he used to take his cigarettes out and smoke, just to show you who he was. Now, if that's the case. It's very difficult to change everything. You, you can't do that. And so you have to wait till the right one comes along and then you can really make the difference. And I think the difference has been very significant. Very good indeed. No, it definitely has been. Um, but that's an incredible insight, obviously, into the idea of obviously changing public health. That a lot of it does come down to, yeah, it's, it's policy, government policy, which ultimately comes down to convincing senior politicians to publicly back it. 
and obviously that that it was the CMO jobs that got you into the world of public health and, and, and government. So could you talk us through that, that whole experience of being CMO of Scotland and then moving on to CMO of the UK, which if I'm correct, you were involved in dealing with the mad cow disease outbreak. Yeah, um, it was a very significant change going from a, a clinical job uh, into essentially a non-clinical job, but at the same time uh, re revolving around some of the things I've been doing along the, the cancer area, for example, public health area I've been involved in, in oncology. So some, some of it was new to me. What was new to me was working with uh, senior uh, officials in the civil service and working with ministers. And I, I found them actually remarkably good to work with most of the time. Yeah, and I, I, I enjoyed it because you could see changes. Um, and I just mentioned one of them, um, Secretary of State, Secretary of State for Health at the time, Virginia Bottomley, uh, was excellent at lots of things. And uh, she came in one day and said, I've been talking to some of my uh, constituents over the weekend. They say things could be better in cancer care. What can you do about it? I said, not the problem. And we set up a commission and changed cancer services uh, in Scotland, uh, in, 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 in the UK, really. So when it's positive like that, you can see that it really works. Uh, if you tie uh, asking the questions, why don't we do something about this? Why don't we do something about that? And the answer is, no, I don't want that to happen just now. We can't get any further. Okay, so it was, if politicians weren't obviously backing those sort of things, it was hard to push them through. Yeah. And so what sort of, as, as a CMO, as Chief Medical Officer, what sort of remit did you have? What did you have, the, for example, the, okay, the power to do and not to be able to do? Well, I think in, in one sense, you don't have power. What you have is the power to convince other people that this is worth doing. And that's why, you know, I, wrote, I think I wrote in the, in the book that uh, I didn't really fight with anybody. And I, I think that's what I tried to do. I mean, if you start fighting with people and arguing strongly with them, then, then they just say, no, 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 no. But if you're, you're on with them and try your best, and sometimes things can change. So it's, it's a matter of getting politicians to change uh, and the civil service to change, as well as the medical profession to change. And, and you don't get that done quickly if you show that. You know what I mean? No, I, I totally, I totally understand what you mean. Um, it's interesting, obviously, talking about this part of your life as well, because it's something I'm really interested in being involved in within medical student politics and possibly going into public health in the future. And um, so it's great to hear that sort of thing. And I, I totally agree when, when I, whether it's negotiating with medical school staff or, you know, the GMC and more broader context, you can't argue with them because that doesn't get you anywhere. You have to get on and, and hopefully get that change through. So, uh, yeah. I definitely would agree. Yes, it's about building up the evidence and, and uh, making it. There's a, 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 a slight digression. There's an interesting book called On War by a chap called von Clausewitz, Prussian German uh, general. And he says the only way to win, there are four things you need to do to win the war. One is to have political will. If you don't have political will, nothing will happen. The second is to have a clear strategy. What you want to do, time skills, where are the objectives. The third thing you need to have 
are people on the ground who can take things forward. And if you take the uh, Commission on Medical Education, for example, we had some wonderful postgraduate deans who just picked up the challenge and did it. And the last thing you need are the resources. Sometimes that's money, sometimes it's something not money, but if you've got good political will, a clear strategy, people on the ground to deliver and resources, it'll work. It'll work. And I'm assuming that's how you can actually translate that then into your public health world. It doesn't always have to be about war. <laughs> no, no, no. You just, you just change, change the language. I, I, but it's, it's a very good analogy of how you can get things working. I used to keep a little notebook with me, which I still do, uh, and go through it every now and then to see why I haven't achieved what I wanted to achieve. And it was usually one of these things. I, it didn't work because the senior people, or the politicians, doesn't matter what you call them, weren't in favour of it. There was no strategy. If you wanted it, nobody would be able to do it out there. And there was no money for it anyway. Yeah. So you, you can quite quickly see what you need to make a change in public health or medical education or whatever you want. And on, obviously talking on that subject as, as well is obviously you mentioned the civil service and, and, and government. Was it, was it a different, sorry, what I'm trying to say here. Was your approach in convincing people different between politicians and civil servants when it came to pushing through public health? I, I found the civil servants a remarkable group of people. Uh, they had significant experience, much greater experience than I had in things, so you can learn from them. And if you're with them and working with them, they have great strength in helping things to happen. So I, I quite like being part of the civil service. I mean, I was a civil servant. Uh, and I, I, I think they're a very good bunch of people. I was just a curious uh, question I had an observation. Just I'd, I've watched uh, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. And so I've always just wondered if it was similar to that. Yeah, it's not, not quite as bad as that. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good. Uh, there are times when I wanted to do a little sketch on it. Uh, but... Uh, I mean, they have a, an important role, the civil service. And if you just watch what's happening across the country at the moment in terms of the civil service and its impact and relates to uh, to ministers, you can see how important that is. But again, being nice to people makes a difference. Oh, very true indeed. Um, and then, obviously, we've talked about just generally being CMO, but you were, as I mentioned before, you were in charge, or you were CMO of the UK during the mad cow disease outbreak. So yeah. what was that to like to preside over and deal with? It was quite a difficult one because a lot of it didn't go through the chief medical officer, but the chief veterinary officer. So I had to get in touch with the, the chief veterinary officer regularly to, to begin to think how, how we could do it to clarify what was actually happening. Uh, and what we needed to do. And that was a very significant thing. If I remember driving, you're too young to remember, but I remember driving through the countryside, watching these huge mounds of cows all being slaughtered uh, to, uh, and you, you, could, you could see it. Uh, and I think that made a significant difference. It was, it, it, what it taught me, uh, again, was, was language. What language you use. And if you use the language that says, this is safe, people assume that there's no problem with it. 
Whereas safe doesn't mean that. It means it's likely uh, to have no problem with it. You know, it's safe, safe to cross the road, but might not be. Yes. And, and uh, I think I, I would never use the word safe now because it means too many things to different people. Oh, interesting. Okay. And, and I think there was a, a little uh, a bit in the in the press about it's safe to eat meat. And that wasn't quite the the, uh, uh, the picture of it. It wasn't safe. It might not have been safe. I think the outcome, if I remember rightly, I looked at this a couple of months ago, 178 deaths from CJD, which is really very small compared to what we thought it was going to be. It doesn't mean to say there might not be a second outbreak or something like that, but it was uh, something that uh, just took over, took over my life. I can imagine. Did, how long did that outbreak last then? Well, it was about six months or so. Okay. And what was it? So you mentioned, obviously, there was a mass slaughter of cows. What other like precautions and stuff were you recommending that should take place to try and limit the spread? That was the, the, the main one to remove uh, cows. And <clears throat> for example, we found that sometimes when cows were killed uh, and uh, they went out for, for eating, they left bits of cerebral spine on it, which is where the, the organism was. So we had to get quite nasty with, uh, uh, with the vets to say, look, we need this done properly, thank you very much. And so that, would you say that's like probably one of the biggest things you've, you've dealt with in your career then? Yes, I mean, one of the, the interesting things about my career, particularly in, the, in public health, was how often I was involved. So I could, for three months at a time, not eat at home because I was out at meetings, talking, dinners, getting things going. On, on a Sunday night, when I was living in London, I had a couch and I put a shirt down for each day and the slides I was using for each day. And in the old days, it was slides too, it wasn't little. Uh, things uh, so that when I got in at night I could just go to bed up the next day I had my shirt clothes ready and all my papers and my slides and get off again so it was it was really quite quite difficult sometimes and very very busy it sounds like it so that was how was that then obviously dealing with family life then during that period that's a very interesting question thank you very much for that question yeah, well, it, my, by that time, my, my kids were uh, slightly older and I wasn't too worried about them. Uh, I was just uh, my wife was left in her own quite a lot of time. We bought a little house in London in the assumption that she would come down and stay there and we would see each other every night. Uh, not a chance. Uh, there was no point. Uh, so she stayed in Glasgow and we went up to Glasgow and she came down to London for the weekend, that kind of thing. Um, but it was quite difficult for seven years to to live like that. On a Sunday night, I'd just get out the ironing and start ironing my shirts. And I'm sorry, sorry dear, I have to do the ironing now. I clearly you have. I mean, from what I've read in the book, it sounds like you have such a a wonderful and um, loving marriage and it sounds like you've got a great as you mentioned already a great family life and I guess I could touch on that as well because it's funny when I was telling folk 
um, oh, we're getting, you know, Sir Kenneth Callman on. This is a this is a big deal. And some some people go, but who's that again? And I'll list off all your achievements, and I go, also the father of Susan Callman, and then they'll go, oh, it's him. <laughs> Uh, the only other question I really had was just having a wee chat about being Chancellor of uh, U of G. Um, and I think that was kind of like the last wee bit was just kind of circling back. Yeah, well, I can summarise things, I think, quite nicely there. First of all, it's a great privilege being Chancellor. It was wonderful uh, on graduation days to see bright young people coming up and getting their degrees and going off to read. It was just wonderful to, to do all of that. Um, it's not a particularly busy role in one sense, apart from the graduation service, and then you don't get paid. So it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to do. And one of the things that I had to do when I became Chancellor was that I had a seat in the chapel. And above the seat has to go your coat of arms and your motto. Now, I, I don't know if you've got a coat of arms yet, but I certainly didn't have one. Yeah, so I had to create a coat of arms and a motto that goes over the stall in the, the chapel. Uh, and it represents since 1451, the chancellors who've been part of the university. So what would the motto be? And that was the interesting one. And I came, on, I came to the conclusion that it could be cum scientia socorro. Through knowledge, I help others, which is quite a nice one, because one of the things we didn't talk about is where some of my best educational experiences were, and it was when I became professor of oncology, I realised that patients knew more than I do about caring for each other, about communicating to each other. And my wife and I invited patients and their families to our home on a couple of occasions just to talk about this, to find out what was happening. And it was very successful. So we opened up a thing called Tack Tent. That's got phrase for take care. Uh, and we used to be working at Garden Hill all the time. Once a month we'd have a, a meeting that all the patients, sometimes up to 100, uh, we'd have a speaker. Uh, we would speak for half an hour on something, then we'd just cup of tea and coffee and talk to each other. They then set up little groups across, and at one point we had as many as 35 separate groups, all led by, by patients and their families to talk to each other, to get to know each other and help each other. And that was so powerful as not my knowledge, but other people's knowledge. So it's through knowledge I help others. It may be other people's knowledge that I used to do it. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience. I, I, I have to say, I, I do love that. That's a very par powerful motto indeed. I think uh, it, it's interesting you say that because I remember writing a personal statement for medicine. I think that was kind of like my, I was trying to explain my motivation for applying was using knowledge that I really enjoyed learning. And as you mentioned in the book, that was something that really motivated you in the sciences and using it to help others. And I think perhaps that's what one of the foundations, I guess, medicine is, is built on. Um, yeah. And I think the only last thing I could possibly ask was if you had any advice for us as medical students and aspiring future doctors uh, going forward in our careers. 
yeah, well, first of all, enjoy it. Uh, and, and think about that motto. It's about helping other people and, and using the, the skills and knowledge that you'll gain over the time to do that. Be, be pleasant uh, and uh, enjoy making people better. Uh, get on with your colleagues and continue to learn for the whole of your life. <laughs>